welcome to another episode of Hyper Leadership. I'm David Morris, your host and founder and CEO of Hyper Solutions. Though hyper leaders are listening and taking in loads of information, because of their sense of urgency, it may very well seem to others that they aren't listening. This topic of engaged listening isn't just important for hyper leaders, but it is critical for our country as people start to have extremely difficult conversations. I'd like to introduce Dan Tangerlini. He had a distinguished career, including CFO at U.S. Department of the Treasury, Administrator of GSA, which is U.S. General Services Administration, amongst other roles. Hi, Dan. Hi, David. Thanks for including me in, in your podcast. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Now, this podcast, Dan, our intended audience are owners, investors, executive sponsors, and ultimately those who are choosing leaders that are going to come in and drive major change, which we call hyperleaders. And what I am so intrigued by in terms of your background is Dan is a type of behind the scenes guy. He has been in these roles in various organizations that have impacted all of us. Some highlights on Dan's background is going back to the Metro uh, in D.C. and D.C. Department of Transportation and City Administrator and D.C. Government, and then getting to become the CFO of the U.S. Department of Treasury before coming in to do an incredible turnaround of the GSA. Dan, when we started talking the other day about listening and engaged listening, what came to mind? Well, first of all, there was the slight irony about talking about listening, but uh, um, but really, for me, the important aspect of listening is this this notion that perhaps you don't know everything, and that there are people who have a much closer perspective of what needs to be better and what needs to be fixed and what the problems are and what the concerns are. That if you actually can go and find a way to increase your surface area to gain contact with them that you can then gain the value uh, of their understanding of what's going on. As you think about some of the biggest challenges that you've been tapped on the shoulder to pull off, and you know specifically when you got that phone call from the Obama administration back in, um, was it April of uh, 2012? Yes, that's right. And there was a challenge at hand, and that challenge was something that you made it seem like it was sort of effortless ease in how you came in and did all that crowdsourcing and all of that. Why don't you give us a little backdrop of what was going on at the time there? Well, first of all, my wife described it as the worst birthday gift ever. She, she, her birthday is April 1st. And uh, <laughs> I had actually, my plan was actually to, to leave the federal government and to go and begin to find my way in the private sector. And then I got dragged back into another assignment. And she knew it was going to be one that would be pretty all-consuming for, for some time. But uh, when, I, when I got there, I mean, I, I, I think it's nice that you describe it as, as effortless, uh, or at least appearing effortless. It, it required a huge amount of effort. And at, at many times, um, a lot of self-doubt and, and questions about whether we were, you know, whether there was uh, something we could do to to address the issue because it had become so politicized so quickly. But um, I found that there were, as in most organizations, a lot of smart, committed, and dedicated people who had ideas about how to make it better. They just didn't have a chance to raise them, and they didn't necessarily have a chance to work on them. 
they didn't have anyone also who was willing to take a risk to pursue those ideas. So in many ways, I think active listening is is part of the is part of the work, and maybe that's the easier part. But in and maybe it's the eighty percent, the twenty percent that's harder. But the twenty percent that actually gets the gets the work done is the willingness to take risk on the ideas that people bring to you, and the willingness to be the person who will take the blame if they go wrong, and and then be excited about the idea of sharing success with people if they go right. Like so many hypers, humble and underpolitical, you know, the part that intrigues me about GSA is how Dan did not jump right into the extreme of the situation. Let's talk a little bit about Las Vegas and what was happening there and why ultimately uh, it was literally, if this was not addressed, if this GSA problem was not addressed, the implications to the overall administration, maybe a little bit of a backdrop. And then I'd love to unpack really what the first few months looked like when you went in there. Yeah, so it was it was spring of 2012. So it was the it was really the beginning of the political season when President Obama was running for re-election, and more and more it was looking like Mitt Romney, a former management consultant, was going to be his challenger. And so, in many ways, this was representative, if you will, of a perspective that that administration, the Obama administration, you know, they were going to turn it into an issue that they weren't good at running the organization. So at some level, the, the GSA problem was, was a political messaging problem. Uh, at another level, it was also a, a problem of a disconnection between an understanding of the pain that people were experiencing in the global financial crisis and the way the government was responding to it. Now, this was a this was a big party thrown in a, actually a suburb of, uh, of Las Vegas, you know, where there were, you know, performers and there were, you know, past hors d'oeuvres. And there was this sense that here was an organization patting itself on the back. The whole purpose of the, uh, the event was really to pat, was to reward itself for its hard work on the Recovery Act, a nearly trillion dollar investment that was necessitated by a collapse in the national and at some level, the global economy that caused millions of people to lose their jobs, millions of people to lose their homes. So this image of government employees whose salaries are paid by taxpayers, a good number of those taxpayers suffering massive consequences from this global financial crisis, you know, partying in Vegas was deeply, deeply troubling. And I'd have to say, you know, the it was troubling to certainly the president. It was troubling to the administration. It was, tr- it was troubling to the Congress. Uh, there was uniform concern about it. Frankly, I didn't. It was not a partisan issue. Everyone was mad, um, and and it was troubling to the, you know, the the vast majority of GSA employees who had dedicated their life and their service to trying to make a more efficient and effective government. It it was. It was discordant with what they thought the mission of the organization was. So after President Obama reached out to your wife and thanked her (laughs) for you uh, accepting this role, reluctantly, just like a lot of hyperleaders, because the mission has to matter in order to sign up for it, you show up and it's a mess and everyone's upset. The budget at the time of the GSA was what? Uh, Well, it's a great question because 
you know, over $65 billion flows through the GSA through the 15% of federal procurement it, um, it oversees. There's a federal buildings fund that oversees the 350 million square feet of office space that, that reaches into the tens of billions of dollars. Uh, the appropriation number is, is a much smaller number because it's one of the few agencies that actually operates a bit like a, uh, like a company in the sense that it has to raise revenue from services it sells into the federal government space. So there are a variety of different ways of describing the number, but we can say it's, it's a lot. And whether it's the White House or the IG or the leadership team, which you're trying to figure out what to do with at the GSA, what does the first few months look like in your very calm demeanor of going in and just listening? How do you go about creating this information flow to you where people don't feel pressure of having to bring a solution to you? They can just bring the problems, et cetera. Yeah, well... You know, the first step was actually engaging in a partnership with the inspector general. We did something together that um, that I don't think many other people have or, or anyone else had actually done before. We, we issued a joint letter to the team saying, if you have a problem, it's, it's your duty, it's your responsibility, it's your role to raise that concern to your supervisor. And if you feel that your supervisor doesn't sufficiently respond, to that problem, it's also then your duty to pass that information, that concern to the inspector general. And what we're doing is saying we're inviting into our organization outside oversight, outside accountability. And I, I thought it was really important that we collectively give people permission to bring accountability into their work. The other, I just so happened to be reading at the time, uh, Alan Mullally's book about his time of uh, working on Ford during the global financial crisis. And I was really struck by the fact that Alan Mulally had created this continuous system of evaluation of performance around key goals that organizations set for themselves and then rewarded people, not just for meeting the goals, but also rewarded people for raising their hand and saying, I'm struggling with an issue and I need everyone else's help to try to solve it. You know, there is this, there's this evolution of, of a problem where it, where it starts as a concern, and if left alone long enough and not dealt with, can metastasize into a crisis. And the GSA scandal was actually one of those things where people had raised, a number of people had raised a concern leading up to the event, said, I don't like the looks of what's about to happen here. I don't, I don't think that this is appropriate, but they didn't feel that the organization rewarded that expression of concern or was willing to listen and certainly didn't feel like the organization was going to take action. Or if they did take action, it would be retributive action. And so what happened was, is that that little kernel of a concern was allowed to grow, metastasize into a crisis that cost people jobs and even, even um, led to some people being prosecuted. As Stephen Covey says, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And with hyperleaders, the sense of urgency, uh, the mission orientation, the willing to do whatever it takes to win a noble cause, 
could create a lot of opportunity to come across as impatient, interrupting, et cetera. How do you balance this urgency inside of you with the fact that even in a conversation like today, uh, there's just no interrupting? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that's a really, really great question. I think uh, Mr. Covey's structure is worth further further consideration. I, I really, I really admire it. Um, and I think, you know, I think that that's the biggest challenge because if you're, if you feel like you have some domain expertise and you're enthusiastic and excited about a particular position or outcome, it's hard not to interrupt. It's hard not to try to win the day. I was a debater in high school. And so, so I, you know, I, I sometimes bring to every conversation this notion of, of competition. Um, but I, I lost a lot of debates too, because people were better at arguing than I was. They were, they had a better command of the facts or they had a better way of, of structuring their arguments to be more convincing. So I think, I think it's okay for people to stake different positions out. I think it's okay for you even to have a strongly held position. But what's really best is if you recognize that your position may ultimately not be right and be willingness and have a willingness, a certain amount of humility and open mindedness to have your position changed. And that's really hard. That's really hard. The the great thing about the GSA job was I'd never run GSA before. Um, I'd been a customer downstream from them in a couple of areas. I had some thoughts and ideas about some of the work they did. But I knew people that I knew there were going to be people in the room that had forgotten more than I would ever know about the organization. And so, frankly, uh, having that limited experience created the environment where I needed the humility to be an active listener and, and be someone who understood, not just responded. Based on all that information you took in from the various stakeholders in the team over those first few months or whatever it may have been. Help the audience understand a little bit of how you converted those insights into action, because you did make a lot of changes, and you did it. You did it with respect to individuals. You you helped them into new roles and new organizations. You did. You did a lot of action. A lot of people may hear this and say, "Well, that's interesting. Dan's a nice guy. He takes in all this information, but what happens?" is you left in just under three years, and that place was transformed. To so help us understand from insight to action. Well, I, I, um, I, you know, I appreciate I appreciate that that assessment of the work there, and and maybe there'd be others who had a different view. But let's go with yours for the the purposes of this discussion. <laughs> and um, I I actually was reading the um, the book The Everything Store at the same time, the story about Jeff Bezos and the creation of Amazon. And one of the things I was I was struck by was this culture of, of Amazon of a six page memo. And the fact that that people would come around the table, they would write the six-page memo, they would come around the table, and before you even started the conversation, they would they would save reserve some time so people read the six-page memo. And you know, they basically said, look, we know that maybe you're going to be too busy to read it before the meeting, so it's going to be part of the meeting that you're going to read it. Um, and it's not like we implemented the six-page memo format. Um, we we did implement some of the red, yellow, green discipline that Alan Mulally uh, uh, had done in Ford. Um, but more importantly was, was implementation of some discipline that forces the leader to be in a position where they actually have to listen. 
and forces some discipline around people coming in some programmatic and disciplined way around the table, even, you know, even when it got kind of tiresome. We spent the entire summer of what we called the top to bottom review, where we had every aspect of the organization come and present on who they are, what they did, what their what their headcount and org structure was, what their budget was, what their challenges were. And we used that process to not just teach me about the organization that I had been given the honor to lead, but really teach the leadership team, reteach the leadership team what the issues and challenges were that each aspect of those programs uh, were facing. And we spent literally months in um, a uh, conference room in the temporary headquarters of GSA, really diving into those issues and then trying to take learnings from one meeting and bumping it up against another. So bringing different teams together to have conversations, asking people, you know, how would you, how would you make this place better if you, if you had unlimited authority and resources, suspending some of the limitations that people bring as received wisdom to every discussion and asking them to challenge themselves and challenge the organization. At the same time, then, we started something called the Great Ideas Hunt, in which we asked every member of the organization to provide us with their great idea about how to make the organization a better organization. And we got literally thousands of recommendations from our employees. We had two rules. One rule is you could comment about any aspect of the work of the General Services Administration. You didn't have to follow organizational hierarchy or structure. And the second rule was you had to put your name on your recommendation. You had to be willing to say, this is my idea. Um, and what was interesting was not so much the number of ideas we got. We were, we were pretty shocked by the volume. But we were really shocked by the number of people who commented on those ideas and actively worked with the original suggester to try to make the idea better. And I think that that's really the key to it. It's, it's, it's not saying that this is my philosophy and, and patting yourself on, on the back for believing it, but it's actually creating the organizational structure and rhythm and discipline about creating the forum and the methods and, and the structures for people to to contribute their ideas that that you should and have to listen to. And I guess that's how you get to culture change and how you get to, uh, even after you leave the assignment, that those habits continue. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the Deputy Secretary of Treasury, the former Deputy Secretary of Treasury, Neil Wollen, got a call from one of the people who came behind him and said, Neil, what's the deal with these quarterly performance reviews? And the quarterly performance review was a process that uh, we started at the Treasury Department to support Neil in his role as the COO of the department to create some continuous mechanism by which concerns and ideas were surfaced to the highest level of the organization so that action could be taken. And we built it as a key component of the budget process because the budget process is just an allocation of resources around a strategy. We used it to set strategy, operational strategy for the for the sub agencies, and we frankly used it to make improvements in in areas of weakness uh, in those agencies. So, to your point, is if you create these 
cultural mechanisms for listening and change, they have a tendency to, to just keep going. They become the, the culture of the organization. Yeah, powerful. And then at a one-on-one level, how, again, do you manage for, uh, and, and even others that you really respect who are, who are great at this listening, uh, maybe in thinking about your brother or the opportunity meet who works in San Francisco Fire, is just the ability to sit across from someone and on one hand have the sense of urgency to get something done, yet listen without this interrupting. Just any techniques you would recommend to the audience. Yeah, well, you know, my brother, since you mentioned him, I'm I'm super proud of, of both my brothers, but my younger brother is a paramedic firefighter in the San Francisco Fire Department. He's now the assistant chief in charge of uh, of medical response. But as a paramedic, you know, here is this great example, here's this great embodiment of this notion of where you have to listen, right? Because the patient, if they're awake, is gonna tell you what's going on. You have to talk to people about what happened, but you have to have this massive sense of urgency because you've got this golden hour for medical intervention that maximizes the chance of saving someone's life. So here is this great example of someone who has to run to a problem, has to very quickly and, and very carefully listen to the inputs about what it is they're looking at here, and yet at the same time has to move as quickly as possible to stabilize and transport the patient. And so I, I think um, to the extent that there are techniques, um, the techniques are, are making it part of your, your response to any problem or concern is not necessarily knee-jerk reacting. Uh, the initial information you tend to get tends to be wrong, <laughs> or it tends to be you know, filtered through a perspective that maybe needs additional perspectives in order to gain a true sense of what's taking place. Um, and at the same time, you have to re- understand that um, the time is not your friend. So you have, to, you have to make sure you're balancing the need to listen and the balancing the need to decide. And I think, you know, constantly working with that and, and, and exercising it like you would exercise any muscle. As we think about the audience, people hiring hyperleaders, whether it's a board of directors, investors, CEOs, uh, president of the United States, um, choosing people to be able to go make breakthrough change happen. You know, reflecting on all of this, Dan, what is your sense, if you're in that position, the best way to evaluate how good of a listener the candidate is? I, you know, I think, I, think, um, I think you can gain a sense from a conversation, although I, 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 I still think the hiring process is one of the most um, inefficient processes in, in, in the world because it's kind of complicated to decide are you going to have a multi-year relationship with someone based on a few hours of conversation? So I think the, the, the responsibility that any manager really has to, in that hiring decision then is to try to talk to and listen to other people and draw out the question uh, from both the person you're interviewing and, and the references you're checking is how, how well does this person incorporate information from sources other than their own internal ones? Um, and maybe find examples. See if you can challenge the individual to give you an example, and then see if you can stress test that example with with other references or ask for examples from references. 
So literally, you're doing listening of their other stakeholders, references, et cetera, to, to judge it. You can't just do it in that interview. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think you, you, can, you, can, you can get an idea from the interview, but then the trick is to actually listen to what you get in the interview and stress test it with other people that you, you talk to and listen to. Terrific. Well, as we close out, given that it's June of 2020, any parting thoughts in terms of what's going on in the world right now and how listening in a nonpartisan manner uh, is critical to moving this world forward? I, I think that question almost answers itself. What you hear out on the streets is people saying, we wouldn't necessarily have to be here if people listened to us uh, for years and years and years. And I, I think it's about time that we start um, hearing and, and, in the words of Mr. Covey, start understanding the pain, the suffering, the challenges of, of bias and racism uh, and societal structures that have uh, interfered with people's fair opportunity to gain uh, opportunities. So I, I, I find the situation we're in exceedingly painful, but also a, a, a point of potential inflection for hope and optimism. And I don't know, I look at almost every situation that way, because the alternative then is, 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 um, is one that would keep you from working on difficult problems. There's one more point I'd, I'd like to make. And, and that is uh, one of the things I really respect and admire about you and why I enjoy our conversation so much is that not only are you a great active listener, but you also are great at asking the next question, drawing out additional information and additional thoughts from people. So, you know, being in a position to receive comments from people or even being in a position to ask that first question is, is good. But what, what converts someone into great is when they're actually actively interested in hearing what the person has to say enough that they stop and ask the next question or even the follow-on question and, and incorporate what they heard in, into that line of inquiry. Well, thank you, Dan. You've been a great teacher over the years, and it's been such a pleasure learning more about this and for the audience to understand that you can be taking in information, you can be taking in data, you can be collecting information from other sources. And then ultimately, when you have that conversation and they feel that they were heard, you, you bring all of that information back, you do amazingly. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast and, and learn more from, from your other guests. Thank you for the audience. Please visit our website for all the episodes of Hyper Leadership Podcast and stay tuned next week as we continue to bring you inside the minds of hyper leaders.